You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Never Graduate, where we don't just talk college sports, we live college sports. And today I am back with part two of our most important games of the 2022 season series that I started last week. We're going to carry it on today. We're going to carry this thing through the month of October. And about halfway through today's episode, after we get through all the October games, we are going to be joined by the very first guest in the history of Never Graduate, Chappie, the college football professor who runs the College Football Podcast, will be joining us to have some fun today. We're going to have some fun talking college football in a little bit of a different way today, but that's after we get through the most important games in the month of October. We've got a lot of big, important games to talk about today. Before we get there, just a quick reminder that you can follow the podcast on social media. You can find us on Twitter. That's at NoGradPod. You can also find the podcast on Instagram. Maybe one of these days I will channel my inner teenager and get around to starting a TikTok account. We're not there yet, maybe down the road, but right now we've got Twitter, we've got Instagram. You can also email the podcast at nevergraduatepodcast at gmail.com if you ever have any questions you would like us to discuss on the show, if you just want to share some thoughts. I love any and all interaction with you guys, so on social media, like, comment, retweet, my DMs are open. I'd love to hear from you guys, and of course... If you do enjoy this podcast, if you keep coming back for more week after week, it would be fantastic if you could take just a quick moment or two to give the show a five-star rating and review. This is obviously still a very new podcast. We are in our first month of existence. I've had a blast doing this, and I want to continue to do this. I want to keep on talking some national college football, but for that to happen, I need your help. Listening like you are today is the very first thing and the best thing you can do to help the podcast grow, but also those five-star ratings and reviews, those are also massive in helping get the word out to other potential listeners about what we have going on here on Never Graduate. So thank you for those of you who have already done that, and thank you in advance to all of you who will help out with that in the future. But all right, guys, we got a lot of games to get to today. I guess only five. I don't know if that qualifies as a lot of games, but deep dives are the rule, not the exception on this podcast. And if you've listened before, you know what I'm talking about. If this is the first time you're checking out the show, you are about to find out very quickly. On this podcast, 
I do not do shallow takes. I do not do surface level talk. I do not do quick sound bites. That's not what this podcast is for. That's not what it's designed to be about. This podcast is designed for people like me, the most diehard, hardcore college fans out there in the good old US of A. So yeah, I like to dive deep into these teams. And even though it's only five games, I've got quite a bit to say about each one of these. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the month of October. We did weeks one through four last week, going through the month of September to kick things off. This week, we are setting our sights on the month of October, and we kicked this month off with a doozy, man. Week five, we've got the NC State Wolfpack traveling to Clemson, South Carolina. To me, there's no question this is not just the most important, but this is also the biggest game of the weekend as well. I think this is potentially, at least in the preseason, trying to project forward, I think this is the game of the year in the ACC. Either this one or Miami at Clemson. I think Clemson's going to be involved in whatever game of the year in the ACC there is. But there are serious division ramifications in this game. That's why I would give NC State at Clemson the nod over Miami at Clemson. I know that Miami is a bigger name brand than NC State. I get that. I'm not arguing that point. But that game does not have division ramifications because Miami's in the coastal, Clemson's in the Atlantic. Miami can lose that game to Clemson, and that's just the first matchup. They get a rematch potentially in the ACC title game later on in the year. Whereas with NC State, if NC State loses this game, I do not see a path to Charlotte for the Wolfpack. I do not think they can even make it to the ACC championship game. That's how important this game is, and that's why it's the clear choice for week five. There are a couple honorable mention games. I think Purdue at Minnesota in the Big Ten is a potentially sneaky big game. Purdue and Minnesota, neither one of those teams are power players, so it's not going to be a massive game on the national radar week five. But I think both teams have a legitimate shot to potentially find themselves atop the Big Ten West at the end of the season. The thing about the Big Ten West is there's just no surefire dominant team in that division coming to the season. And I don't want to say that anybody in the Big Ten West could win that division this year because I do not think that either Illinois or Northwestern can do that. I don't think they had that capability this season. But the rest of the Big Ten West, I think you can make an argument for each of those teams. I think you can make an argument for Minnesota, for Wisconsin, for Purdue, for Nebraska, for Iowa. It is a very wide open division. And that first weekend in December when we're playing the conference championship games, this could be one of those games you look back on and say, yep, this was the game that decided the Big Ten West. But in no way is it as big as NC State at Clemson. I think Alabama at Arkansas is another one that is a sneaky important game. Alabama clearly is the favorite in the Big Ten West. I know they're the favorite in the entire SEC. They're the favorite in the entire country right now to win the national championship. I know that Texas A&M is the team that everyone is pegging as the true challenger to Bama in the West this year. And that may end up being the case. That probably will end up being the case. But I'm not going to completely discount Arkansas. Alabama has to travel to Fayetteville, and that is going to be a hostile, hostile environment for the Tide to come into. And I think Arkansas has enough talent to potentially challenge Bama to a degree in this game, keep it close for a half or so. And if Bama makes some mistakes like they did on the road in College Station last year, guys, Alabama was significantly better than A&M last year. They were. But we know, obviously, they lost to A&M in College Station. But that was because Alabama played the worst game that I think I have seen them play since Saban took over in 2007. So if they play a game like that again at 
Arkansas, I think the Hogs are good enough to jump up and bite them. And that that's important because there's a lot of teams out there in the SEC and around the country that Bama could play their worst game and they still couldn't beat Bama. Like Vanderbilt, Bama could play the worst game they could possibly play. They could play their F-level game. And Vanderbilt, even if they played their A-level game, they still couldn't beat Alabama. That's not the case with a team like Arkansas. Bama is better than Arkansas. They have more talent. I am not questioning that. But if Bama plays a bad game like they did on the road in College Station last year, Arkansas's got enough talent, they've got enough experience returning to find a way to win that football game. If they win that game, huh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how that kind of plays out. But clearly, that's not the biggest game of the weekend. Again, it's NC State at Clemson. No questions asked. Whoever wins this game, like I said a second ago, is going to win the ACC Atlantic. I will go ahead and say that right now. NC State or Clemson, whoever wins this football game will win the Atlantic Division and represent their division in the ACC title game in Charlotte. And those of you who listened to the first two episodes of the podcast back in early July when I gave you guys my top 10 preseason win total bets probably remember that both Clemson and NC State made that list just in very different ways. I had Clemson as one of my best bets at under 10.5, which did not make Clemson fans very happy. And then on the other side, I had NC State as one of my best bets to go over 8.5. I honestly think that the sports books are underselling NC State. If you look at that schedule, I don't know where there are four losses on that schedule when you factor in what they have coming back on offense and on defense. I mean, They were decimated on defense for large portions of last season. They still found a way to put together a top 15, top 20 caliber defense in most major metrics. And all of those guys that were out last year, Isaiah Moore, Peyton Wilson, CJ Clark, all of them project to be back fully healthy again this year. And I have to be honest with you guys, when I first started to look at these win total bets and really dive into these teams back in early May, when the win totals first started to slowly trickle out on various sports books out there, I was higher on NC State than I was on Clemson. I was ready to say back in May that NC State was going to win the Atlantic Division and potentially, probably, win the ACC title outright. But as the months progress and we get closer and closer to the 2022 football season, and I really just dig into this Clemson team and watch them more and more on tape, I am being slowly but surely pulled more and more back in the direction of Clemson. It's like the gravitational pull. It's forcing me back in their direction. The issue for me in trying to project Clemson and NC State this season and who's going to win the Atlantic is that I am having a really hard time unseeing what I saw from that Clemson offense last season. So back in May, when I was like, yes, give me NC State. They're going to go into Death Valley. They're going to beat Clemson. They're going to win the Atlantic. They're going to win the ACC. I love the talent they have coming back. Got Devin Leary, one of the top quarterbacks in the the ACC, if not the entire country. You got two good receivers in Devin Carter and Thayer Thomas. You've got great players on a defense that was really productive last year. Most of those big-time players are coming back, getting a lot of guys back from injury. I'm all in on NC State. But the more I watch Clemson, I've gone back, guys, for the past couple weeks, and I've watched multiple games again from last season. In fact, on Saturday night, I just re-watched the Clemson-NC State game from last year that the Wolfpack won in overtime. But the more that I watch this Clemson offense, I'm still convinced they were terrible last year. They were. I mean, there's no getting around that. You look at the numbers from last year, you watch them play, the eye test tells you they were flat-out abysmal on offense. I mean, DJ Ui Ungalale was a guy who came into last season as one of the top Heisman contenders 
in the preseason. He was getting a lot of love. He was one of the betting favorites. But he put up what I would argue was potentially the worst season of any quarterback in the ACC last year. I think he was arguably the worst quarterback in the entire league. I mean, he completed only 55% of his passes for only six yards per attempt, nine touchdowns to 10 interceptions. He was dead last in the conference in yards per attempt, dead last in quarterback rating. He was consistently making baffling decisions, throwing balls into tight windows where he had no business throwing those balls into, not pulling the trigger when he should have pulled the trigger. And then when he did pull the trigger, missing his target by 10 yards, yards. He was shaky. He was hesitant. He lacked confidence. He looked like a deer in the headlights at times. He just was flat out not good last year. So when I say I can't unsee what I saw from the Clemson offense last year, that's what I'm talking about. When I go back and watch them play from last year, I see all those things. I see DJ being an absolute disaster for them offensively. I see them struggling to manufacture any kind of points I mean, I know that game against NC State went into overtime and give them credit for that, but they were outgained by the Wolfpack 386 to 215. No, NC State didn't put up a lot of yards and points in that game, but Clemson was anemic on offense, 215 yards. They started out pretty hot in the first quarter, actually, but after that point, they really could not do much of anything offensively, and that was pretty much the story the rest of the way. I mean, guys, last year, Clemson put up under 300 total yards of offense in six of their 13 games. Nearly half of their games, they could not even reach 300 total yards. So that's what I'm talking about when I say I cannot unsee what I saw from the Clemson offense last year. NC State clearly had the better, more productive, more explosive offense, and their defense was not quite as good as Clemson's. I mean, Clemson had a top five caliber defense last year. NC State had a top 15 caliber defense, if you look at most metrics, but there wasn't a massive gulf there. There was a massive gap between the NC State offense and the Clemson offense. So that's why in May, I was saying, all right, man, I'm ready. I'm all in on NC State. But the closer we get to the season, the more thought I put into this, the more I watch this Clemson team, the more I analyze their roster, the more I come to realize there is still serious talent on the Clemson offense. DJ Ui Ungulale was flat out god-awful last year. The only reason he was able to keep his job all, all season long was the fact that they just simply did not have any other options. If Clay Kubnick was on the roster last year, DJ would have been benched. Zero questions asked, but they didn't have those options, so they had to roll with him all season long, and it was just bad. But this is also the same guy in 2020 in the COVID year with no experience in big-time spots against Boston College and obviously a big-time spot on the road at Notre Dame. Obviously, there weren't any, wasn't anybody in the stadium, but still, it's a big spot against a good team. Put up fantastic performances as a true freshman. And then you fast forward to 2021, and you're like, what happened? This is not the guy that we saw last year. I know it's a small sample size, but this is not the same guy. I mean, it's the same guy, but he's playing like he's from outer space right now. And I'm still having a very tough time reconciling that, but we have seen DJ in action perform at a high level. 
we just didn't see it at all last year. It's just, it's a weird, weird situation. But there's context to it. They obviously had major issues on the offensive line last year. They just were not very good to start off with. Like, their starting five offensive linemen were not good. I said that coming into last season. I ran a Georgia podcast. Obviously, Georgia played Clemson week one last year, and I felt very confident going to that matchup. I didn't see it being a 10-3 game the way it played out. But I felt confident Georgia would win that game because I thought that Georgia would be able to manhandle the Clemson offensive line. I thought I thought it was just a nightmare matchup for Clemson. It played out that way. Now, I did not see Georgia only scoring 10 points themselves and not scoring an offensive touchdown. But in terms of the Georgia defense against that Clemson offensive line, I thought that was a mismatch all summer long, and it turned out to be the case. And then they suffered some injuries, even with some of those guys who weren't good to start off with. So that obviously affected DJ. And then you have a lot of injuries at wide receiver. Justin Ross came back to, to much fanfare, but he wasn't the same guy. He ends up getting re-injured later in the year. EJ Williams was good at times, but never really was able to break out there. Your top running back, Will Shipley, who's really talented, was a true freshman, so there were some protection issues there. So maybe I'm making excuses for Clemson. Maybe you can say that, but all I'm trying to put out there is I think there's some context to the struggles that DJ Ui Ungalale had last year. Now, this year, I don't know what to expect. Because again, 2020, very small sample size. We saw some really good, promising things from him. Last season, an abject disaster, really, from the start. But Ngata is healthy. He's a guy that absolutely can develop into a number one receiver. EJ Williams, I believe, has that potential as well. Yeah, Will Shipley and Kobe Pace back in the backfield, who are really good one-two punch. So I think there's reason to believe the Clemson offense can bounce back this year. I just am having a really hard time buying into them being an elite offense. I don't see that happening this year. I mean, they obviously have a new coordinator as well. Brand new coordinator who's never called plays before. Brandon Streeter coming in as offense coordinator to replace Tony Elliott. But the thing about the Clemson offense and this Clemson team in general is that the offense does not need to be elite like it was with Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson. With that defense, especially that defensive front, if if the offense can just be competent this year, I think Clemson can win the ACC Atlantic and beat NC State in the process. Really, it just comes down to schedule. If Clemson and NC State played on a neutral site this year, I believe that NC State is the better team this year. Now, this is where Clemson fans get really angry with me. I'm not trying to suggest that NC State has a better program than Clemson. That would be insane. Clemson clearly has the superior program. There's not even any use discussing that. They clearly have the better program. But that doesn't mean in one given year, in a one-off situation, that NC State cannot be better than Clemson. They built to this point. They have a lot of returning starters coming back on their offense and their defense impact players. We're talking about Devin Leary at quarterback. We're talking about Isaiah Moore. We're talking about Peyton Wilson. We're talking about CJ Clark along the defensive line. There are impact players coming back for this NC State Wolfpack team on both sides of the ball. The problem for NC State is that this game is at Clemson. I have been to a big time game at Clemson in Death Valley East, if you want to call it that. I can fully attest it is a very rowdy, tough environment for a visiting team to play in, especially in a game of this magnitude. And it has been a significant home field advantage for the Tigers over the past couple of years. I mean, they've only lost one single home game since 2016. That was to Pitt in 2016. They have not lost another home game since then. Now, part of that, sure, is the fact that they don't play a lot of great teams. Because let's be honest, the ACC on a annual basis is not really a power conference. They've had Notre Dame in there a couple of times, but they haven't really had 
a ton of high-profile matchups in that stadium. But still, regardless, it is a tough place to play. you got to give them credit. And it's just going to be a very, very difficult task for NC State to go in to Clemson and win this football game in that environment. So if I had to project right now, if I had to make a pick for this week five game right now here in late July, I would pick Clemson to beat NC State at home while at the same time saying that I still think NC State's the better team and they absolutely have a chance to win this game. I'm not writing them off. I'm not writing them off because I, I do think they have the talent to get the job done. I'm just going on past history here. And I know this is a different game. It's different teams, different context, different situation. I get that. But that's a tough place to play. And I can't pick NC State to win that game until I see it happen. I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive. But I've just seen too many teams that think they can beat Clemson go into that environment and come out battered and bruised. But either way, it's going to be an incredibly important game in the ACC. In fact, as I said, I believe this is the game of the year in the ACC. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, moving on to week six. This is another clear cut winner for me. Texas A&M traveling to Tuscaloosa to take on the mighty Alabama Crimson Tide. This is the clear-cut, most important, and clear-cut biggest game of Week 6. In fact, I would argue this is the biggest game on the entire college football schedule entering 2022 when you factor in all the Saban Jimbo drama that's going to accompany the build-up to this game. I know Texas and Oklahoma fans might want to make an argument that that would be a bigger game than A&M and Alabama, but I would respectfully beg to differ. In that game, whoever loses, whether it's Texas or Oklahoma, they could very feasibly still make it to the Big 12 championship game with Texas and OU being the two betting favorites entering the season in the Big 12. That could just be round one. They had the rematch later in the Big 12 title game. So beyond the drama, I just think there's more actual conference title stakes at play with this A&M Alabama matchup. Now, I do think Alabama, even if they somehow lose to A&M like last year, I still think that they can find a way to run the table the rest of the way and end up in Atlanta as the winner of the SEC West, again, just like last year. A&M, though, it's a really important game for A&M. 
If they lose to Alabama, I do not see A&M winning the SEC West. Because what that's going to mean, actually, I don't think there's any way A&M is going to win the SEC West if they lose to Alabama. Because what that means is Bama will have to lose two conference games for A&M to get the nod over Bama if they lose in Tuscaloosa. Because Bama would have the tiebreaker over them. And that is assuming that A&M runs the table the rest of the way, which that's a tough thing to assume considering they lost at home in Mississippi State last year. They lost to Arkansas. They lost to Ole Miss. They lost to a an LSU team that had a lame duck head coach at the very end of the year. So I certainly wouldn't assume that. But even if they did run the table after losing to Alabama, it's still going to be really, really, really difficult for them to get into the SEC championship game. I mean, they could feasibly go 11-1 if that one loss is to Bama and still not make it to Atlanta. So this is a massive game for both teams, probably more for the Aggies than the Crimson Tide, but it's a big game, an important game nonetheless. I also think Alabama should be the clear-cut favorite in this game. I know that AM beat Bama last year. I know that Jimbo became the very first Saban disciple to beat the old head coach. Kirby Smart followed that up a couple months later, became number two in, in a bigger game. I get that. I know A&M kind of got that monkey off their back. I guess Johnny Menzel beat him in 2012, but it's been a minute, right? And Jimbo, that was his signature win. At least it was supposed to be his signature win. And then they follow that up and kind of fall on their face against some teams in the SEC West they should have probably beaten. But I actually just rewatched that game a couple of weekends ago. And my big takeaway from that game was that, sure, A&M played well enough to win. They made plays and they had to, but Bama really I know AM fans would take issue with this, but they kind of gave them that game, guys. That was the worst game I've seen an Alabama football team play since Nick Saban first got there in 2007. I mean, I'm serious when I say that. I mean, they were fumbling handoffs, giving Texas A&M short fields, Bryce Young throwing interceptions in the end zone, making poor reads, receivers uncharacteristically dropping balls. The secondary uncharacteristically blowing coverages, leaving AM receivers running wide open for easy touchdowns. Again, give AM credit. They were able to make plays when they were presented with the opportunity to make those plays, but Bama certainly opened the door for them to do that, to get to pull that upset. I find it almost inconceivable to expect Alabama to play that poorly against the same team two years in a row, especially when this game is now at home. They're more experienced. Bryce Young, most importantly, is more experienced. And right now, I'm just not sure that AM has the proven playmakers offensively to go into Tuscaloosa and challenge what I think is going to be a very, very good Alabama defense this year. In particular, I'm not sure they have a quarterback on roster who is ready to go out and to perform at an elite level that a team needs to go on the road and beat Alabama. I don't think Max Johnson is that guy. I think he's a good, serviceable player, but he's not elite. Haynes King, we haven't seen much of him. We saw a little bit, what, a game and a half last year, but it's hard to project that right now going into this season, and especially in that game, in that environment in Tuscaloosa. And Connor Wegman, the freshman, is he going to be ready to go into that kind of environment and perform at an elite level that would be needed to beat a team like Alabama? I just don't see it. I don't see it. I know AM had the greatest recruiting class in the history of recruiting classes, but they are all true freshmen. Alabama has been recruiting like that for a decade now, guys. Their roster, I know AM is catching up, but the Bama roster is still at a different level. So give me Bama in this game, and honestly, give me Bama by two scores or more, at least where we sit right now 
in late July. All right, in the next week we have here, week seven, I've got USC at Utah as the biggest game of week seven, just like NC State at Clemson probably is going to be the game of the year in the ACC. USC at Utah could very well shape up to be the game of the year in the Pac-12. Now, there are a couple other games I think you could make an argument for, depending on how the first couple weeks of the season play out. I think Penn State at Michigan could be one of those games that you can make an argument for, but I'm just not so sure I see Penn State as a true Big Ten East contender. And I am going to talk about Penn State here in about 10 minutes or so. So I want to spread the love a little bit. There's that as well. But moving away from divisions, I I would argue that takes a little bit of the juice out of this one, but this is still a massive game in the Pac-12. You got hot shot Lincoln Riley with his hot shot team of transfers traveling to the mountains to take on a throwback, punch you in the gut, spit in your face team in Utah. Now, I'm not going to argue quarterbacks here. I'm not going to argue wide receivers. USC has the clear edge at both positions. Although I do think Cam Rising's pretty damn good himself and and Brent Keithy and Dalton Kincaid are really good tight ends. I'll give the, I'll give Utah the edge at tight end. But what I will argue is culture, identity, lines of scrimmage. Those are the areas in which I believe Utah is vastly superior to USC right now. I still think that USC has some major issues on defense. They took a ton of transfers that for some reason some people out there in the national media are pretty high on and think that's going to pay immediate dividends for USC, but I don't see it that way. I think a lot of those guys are pretty marginal. Shane Lee, for example, coming over from Alabama. Yeah, he was thrust into duty as a true freshman back in 2019, but if you actually watched him play back in 2019, that guy was not good. He was not good. Now, at the time, I was like, well, you know, he's a true freshman. You know, maybe he'll grow and get better, but he was a liability for them. The only reason he was playing was because there were some injuries, a lot of injuries, that Bama dealt with that position that year. But you know what? I think he's made nine total tackles in the two years since then. So what does that tell you? That tells you the Bama coaches kind of thought the same thing I thought. He was a liability. He essentially did not play the last two years. Now he's transferred to USC. And sure, Bama has great players all over the roster. So maybe you could say, well, just because he couldn't play at Bama doesn't mean he's not good. It doesn't mean he's not going to be an upgrade for USC. And I guess you could make that argument. But again, I go back to what I've seen with my own two eyes. In 2019, Shane Lee was a problem. He was a liability for Alabama. Romello Heights, a transfer from Auburn, same thing. He really hasn't played all that much himself. Has Was never really an impact player to Auburn. Was a decently highly recruited guy coming out of high school. But we've seen nothing from him to this point in his career to suggest that he's going to come in right away and be an immediate impact type guy for USC. So I think they're kind of hanging their hopes on some guys that might ultimately end up disappointing them a little bit. I just think Utah is just so much stronger along the lines of scrimmage that they're going to be able to control this game and force USC to try to play their game, which is not a good recipe for USC. The must, the the mighty Utah student section is going to be rocking that night. And I I really believe, I believe that Utah is going to be able to run the football with Tavian Thomas and those 12 personnel sets with Keithy and Kincaid, work play action off of that. And I just don't think that USC is going to have an answer. I can see USC putting up some points. They obviously have a lot of firepower offensively, especially at the skill position. But at the end of the day, I just don't see any way that they're going to be able to stop Utah. I think Utah is going to be able to control the, the game, shorten the game, and ultimately just bludgeon USC into submission. All right, moving along here, let's go to week eight. Now, this is another one of those weekends. We had one of these in September, 
But this is like the second weekend of the college football season that doesn't really have a ton of sexy matchups. And that's okay. I know you want the big time matchups, but it's always these weekends. At least it always seems to be these weekends without the big, highly anticipated matchups that end up being the weekends where chaos is just unleashed on the entire college football world. So we'll see how it all plays out. But there aren't the the headliner matchups this week. I did strongly consider Purdue and Wisconsin in this spot, but ultimately when it comes down to it, I think both of those teams could very realistically have two losses by week eight. So if that's the case, like how important is that game end up being? So what did I settle on? I settled on Ole Miss at LSU. Now, let me explain why. I know that on the surface, that doesn't really jump out at you. And, and I, I agree, it's not really a, a big time matchup in terms of the national scene, but where are the matchups? Where are those matchups this week? So let me explain why I went with the Ole Miss at LSU. I've said this before on the show. I'll say it again for those of you who might not have heard it. I think that Ole Miss has a very legitimate chance to come into Death Valley week eight undefeated at 7-0. I think really the only team standing in their way is a home game against Kentucky. I think that's the only one. So I think 7-0 is very, very realistic. And on the other side, I think LSU has so much more talent than people are giving them credit for coming into this season. On offense, I mean, you know Kayshawn Boutte. He's one of the best, if not the best wide receivers in the entire country. Jeray Jenkins, Malik Neighbors, a couple of guys to go with him. Jack Besh, who was kind of like a hybrid tight end receiver last year. Looks like he's probably going to sell at wide receiver this year. I think they have some weapons at receiver. John Emery is a guy we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for him to live up to the five-star hype coming out of high school. The coaches are very high on him, at least coming out of out of Baton Rouge. He had a strong spring. We'll see if he can kind of actually translate to the field in 2022 during the season. They also got Noah Kane, who's a former pretty highly recruited guy out of high school as well. He was at Penn State. It never really worked out for him there, but he's transferred into LSU as well. So they have some talented options in the backfield. At quarterback, that's the big question, clearly. Is it going to be Miles Brennan? Is it going to be Jaden Daniels? But the thing is, I think whoever ends up winning that job has a chance to be pretty damn good. I mean, Miles Brennan was playing really well for LSU in 2020 before he got injured and got knocked out the rest of that year and really wasn't a factor last year either. And if you look at Jaden Daniels, now I know that last year was a step back for him, but he was fantastic as a true freshman for Arizona State. 17 touchdowns to two interceptions, almost 3,000 yards passing, had 700 yards rushing last year. Now, he was much more inconsistent as a passer last year, but there was also just a ton of chaos spiraling around that program. In fact, it's still spiraling around that program. So he left town along with pretty much the rest of the team, and he's now in Baton Rouge as well. I don't know who's going to win this quarterback battle. I really don't. I think it's wide open going to fall camp. But again, whoever wins the job, I think can perform at a high enough level with the town around them to put this LSU offense in position to actually end up being pretty good when you factor in Brian Kelly and what he's been able to do as an offensive guy in, in the past, whether it was at Central Michigan, whether it was at Cincinnati, whether it was at Notre Dame. And then defensively, I think they have a chance to be awesome on defense. I mean, just let me list off a couple of these names for you. Ali Gay, Jacqueline Royal on the, the defensive line, Mason Smith on the defensive line, former big-time five-star recruit, B.J. Ojolari, who might end up being one of the best pass rushers in the SEC if he can stay healthy, 
Micah Baskerville, an inside linebacker, Joe Fouché coming over as a transfer from Arkansas in the secondary. They are loaded with top-end talent on the defensive side of the ball. Now, they do have a tougher schedule than Ole Miss does to open this season. So I do not think there's going to end up being a matchup of undefeated teams in Week 8. I think 5-2, and two, though, is very realistic for LSU. And at this point, if you have Ole Miss, who is 7-0 and very well could be in the top five, maybe tied with Bama atop the SEC West, going into Death Valley against an LSU team that might be 5-2, and two, that could be a very intriguing game. And I also think it's a very important game because if Ole Miss does what I think they might have a chance to do and start off 7-0, start the season inside the top five, tied with Bama atop the SEC West coming into week eight at LSU, this is going to kick off a gauntlet to end this season for LSU. they got at LSU, at AM, Bama, at Arkansas, and Mississippi State at home. If Ole Miss is going to keep their hopes alive to potentially win the, the SEC West, they simply have to win this football game. If they lose this game, there's no chance. I really don't see there's any chance because then you follow that up with at AM, Bama, at, at Arkansas, Mississippi State, and the Egg Bowl to end the season. And then on the flip side here, LSU has a chance to pull off the first signature win of the Brian Kelly era. If Ole Miss, again, is as good as I think they're going to be coming into this game, this would be a signature win for Brian Kelly. At least it would be perceived that way at the time. Now, at the end of the season, if Ole Miss kind of face plants the last part of the season's up 8-4, 7-5, maybe that perception changes. But at the time, I think the LSU's going to have a chance to beat a top-five team at home in Death Valley. So in a week that doesn't really have any of those high-profile matchups, I think Ole Miss at LSU might end up being the most important game of Week 8. And finally, to wrap up the month of October, Week 9, the game I'm going with here is Ohio State at Penn State. Now, this is not going to be the wideout game. Now, you would think Ohio State going to Penn State, this is clearly wideout conditions, right? Well, Fox had to step in and say, you know what, guys, this is the big noon kickoff. So Penn State does not want to do their wideout at noon. They want to save that for a night game. So they're going to do that against Minnesota, I think, earlier in the season. So I think Ohio State kind of lucked out there. But anyway, you cut it wideout or not, this is still a massive matchup. That's why Fox has already selected this as the big noon kickoff back in June. The stakes are pretty clear in this one. With a schedule that doesn't really have a ton of slip-up spots for Ohio State, this is one of those spots. In fact, this might be the most dangerous game on the Ohio State schedule. I know they open with Notre Dame, who's expected to be a very good team. I expect Notre Dame to be good, but that's at home. That's in the horseshoe. Michigan at the end of the season, they get them at home in a revenge spot. Sure, they have to go to Michigan State, but I don't project Michigan State to be as good this year. I do think they're going to take a pretty significant step back. Penn State, I'm still not sold on, as I told you guys earlier, I'm still not sold on them as a true Big Ten East contender, but they have the ability to upset Ohio State if the conditions are right. And what I mean by that, if the conditions are right, that's going to require Ohio State to make some uncharacteristic mistakes, and it's going to require Penn State to execute at a very high level and really play their A game. I would kind of equate this to... Alabama losing on the road at Texas A&M last year. As I told you earlier, Alabama was clearly a better football team than A&M was last year. They won the SEC. They played the national title game. 
but they lost to AM. They lost that game because they played uncharacteristically poorly, really in all phases of the game. And AM played really well. Zach Calzada, who was the ultimate deer in the headlights all season long, played by far his best game of the season. And they made the plays when they had to make it. They executed at a really high level for the vast majority of that game. So that is how upsets happen. That's how an inferior team beats a superior team. That better team, in this case, Ohio State, has to open the door for you and give you opportunities. And then you, the lesser team, in this case, Penn State, has to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. Not every team can do that. That's why I'm giving Penn State some credit here. I know Penn State fans kind of take this as a backhanded compliment, but like if Illinois was playing Ohio State, let's say Ohio State goes into Illinois and Ohio State plays like a D-level game and Illinois plays their A-level game, I still don't think that's good enough for Illinois to upset Ohio State. Penn State's a different story though. They have enough talent. You have Sean Clifford coming back for his 17th year as quarterback for Penn State. He's got some serious weapons to work with out wide and Parker Washington coming back as a sophomore. Mitchell Tinsley coming over in Western Kentucky, bringing over 1,400 yards receiving last year. You've got Nick Singleton, who was a highly rated true freshman coming in at running back who could potentially take over that job early in this season. They have enough weapons, enough talent to be able to pull the upset if Ohio State opens the door and gives them the opportunity to do that. Now, will that happen? You certainly cannot predict it happening here in July, but I would also say it's not impossible. But this is a very important game because I do think this is the one spot on the schedule that Ohio State really could slip up before they have that titanic matchup, that highly anticipated matchup with Michigan to close out the regular season. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, guys, let's go ahead and bring in the very first guest in the short history of Never Graduate. I am very excited to welcome in Chappie, the college football professor host of the College Football Podcast and owner of CFPCollegeFootball.com, where you can find team previews, picks, his YouTube series, Walk It Off, which is always a fantastic watch, and so much more. You can follow him on Twitter at ChappieCFB. He's bringing the content from every possible direction. So Chappie, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for giving me somebody to talk college football with, because even though we've got Twitter I, I find myself sometimes a little bit alone in how passionate I am. So it, it's good to talk with somebody who's uh, about as passionate as I am about this great sport, Tyler. So thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man. I'm very excited to talk some college football today. And like you said, we've interacted a couple of times on Twitter, but we haven't really had a chance to kind of get to know each other on a, on a deeper level. So just to help me and my audience get to know you. Now, I know you're a Northwestern guy. We talked about that a little bit before we jumped on here today. But what I'm really curious about is how did you get involved in covering college football? Well, just being an absolute passionado about it, 
I was the the kid in high school who didn't really want to go out on the weekends, didn't really want to do anything in the evenings, not only because I was kind of, uh, I lived a little bit further from my high school, but honestly, Thursday nights, that was dedicated to college football on ESPN. And then Saturdays from kickoff on college game day, which at that point was only one hour, all the way until, I mean, if, if Hawaii was playing a televised game and they didn't kick off until 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, and it got done at like 2 a.m. Eastern time, and that was a, a great day for me. So I did all that, and then in college, I would I would frequent message boards online and was suggested to me and, and invited by a couple different sites to write for them as kind of like a freelance writer, and I wasn't looking to necessarily make a lot of coin doing that. It was something that I was doing anyway. So I, I, I thought it would be great to interact with other college football diehards like myself. And, you know, I'm in education. That's, that's the job that pays the bills. But the nice thing about it is obviously I have my summers to dive in and do a lot of research and preparation and make my picks and prognostications for the upcoming season. And then once the, the teaching day is done, it's I, I become college football analyst and college football voice, and, and I love it. So it's it's clearly woven in the fabric of, of my DNA, and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's awesome, man. Very, very cool. But are you ready to go ahead and dive into this and talk some college football? Uh, every day, 24-7, 365. Let's do it. Let's do this. So we're going to do something a little outside the box here today, guys. We're going to have some fun with this. So just, just work with us here. I'm calling this segment the College Football Fight Club. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give Chappie two just random teams to battle it out. And his job is going to be to tell me which team will have the better season when the 2022 college football season is all said and done. So at the end of the day, who ends up with a better record? And we are kicking things off with two power programs, at least two programs whose fan bases think they are power programs. We're going to start with Texas and USC. Now, these are two teams coming off very disappointing seasons a year ago who are getting conference title hype coming into 2022. Texas obviously went 5-7 and seven last year. USC went 4-8. and eight with Clay Helton being shown the door early in the season. So Chappie, our first matchup in the College Ball Fight Club, Texas versus USC. Which of these teams is going to put together the better season in 2022? Well, I'm going to go with USC, but let me just preface this by saying I am not nearly as built on the hype train for Lincoln Riley and the Trojans. I mean, on paper, they have probably the best offense in the Power Five conferences. The only question mark on offense might be O-line, but they do get Josh Henson, who is the O-line coach from Texas A&M. So I think that's a big plus for them, shoring up that area of relative weakness on that side. Defense, a lot of people hype up Alex Grinch. I think he's a good D coordinator. I don't know that he's a great D coordinator, but again, they have so much talent. So how soon can Grinch put it all together? And their schedule sets up very nicely for them. There is a trip to Salt Lake City, Utah, which I think Utah will get the best of them. But other than that, USC has it pretty favorable. And Utah has a trip to Eugene, Oregon that's going to bite them. And they also, I think that they might trip up in a, uh, a game after the Utah, that is, after they 
presumably beat USC in their backyard, and then they have a bye, and then they go out to Pullman, Washington to play Washington State. So I think Utah actually has two losses there in conference. USC has just one. I have the Trojans going 11-1 and finishing as Pac-12 champions. Texas, I'm high on them as well, but not high enough to where, you know, we can say that Texas is back. And honestly, even if Texas were to win the Big 12 this year, I wouldn't say that they're back just yet. They got to do it in consistently consecutive seasons. So I have Texas finishing second behind Oklahoma in the Big 12, going 9-3. and three. Uh, I think Texas's offense will also be very explosive. Bijan Robinson is one of my favorite players to watch in college football. Quinn Ewers, if he can be the quarterback that he's pegged to be, he's certainly got a, a great cast of receivers and tight ends to throw to. Uh, Jatavian Sanders was the number one recruit last year in that area. And then, you know, Xavier Worthy comes back, Isaiah Nair coming over from Wyoming. But again, my questions for Texas are on both lines, offensive line and defensive line. I think they only bring back two starters in that O-line, and their D-line was questionable all last year. They just didn't seem to get after the quarterback like I thought they would. So between those two, I'm giving the Fight Club champion to USC in that pairing there, Tyler. Yeah, I think that's the right call here, Chappie. That's who I would go with as well. I think there are a lot of similarities, honestly, between these two teams. I think both these rosters are loaded with skilled talent on offense. I think USC is in better shape on the offensive line, as you mentioned. Texas is likely going to have to start two true freshmen, at least two true freshmen on the offensive line. Highly recruited guys, but true freshmen nonetheless. But it's two teams with offensive masterminds at head coach and two teams that also have major questions on defense. I do think Texas is closer to answering some of those defensive questions because they've just recruited better over the last three or four years. You know, with Clay Helton as a lame duck coach, he was having a lot of trouble getting those high-profile guys. I know you get Corey Foreman, but that's a guy here or there. But when it comes down to it for me, I think if you look at the rosters in totality, I think USC has more known quantities. I think Caleb Williams is more of a known quantity over Quinn Ewers. Quinn Ewers might be the next greatest quarterback ever. Maybe, possibly. We don't know that. We at least have evidence that Caleb Williams can perform at an elite level. At receiver, both teams have two legit number one receivers, USC, Jordan Addison, Texas Xavier Worthy, but Jordan Addison's the defending Bolitnikoff Award winner, right? Xavier Worthy did some really good things as a true freshman last year, but he did not put up Jordan Addison-level numbers. And I would also, from the head coaching perspective, I would take Lincoln Riley over Sark. At least as a head coach, he's far more proven than Sarkeesian. I think Sarkeesian's high watermark as a head coach is a nine-win season. Lincoln Riley has made multiple college football playoffs. Hasn't won any games when he's gotten there, but he's at least gotten there and won conference titles, which is something that Sarkeesian has still never done in his career as a head coach. So there's just more known quantities on that USC roster. I honestly think it will come down to schedule, as you were kind of mentioning there. I think both teams obviously have a big non-conference game, but the Pac-12 schedule is is just more forgiving. And USC does not have Oregon on the schedule. They've got Arizona and Colorado should be automatic wins there. And then, now I know they've done away with divisions in the Pac-12, but they're, what would have been crossover play, because they kind of kept the same schedules, they got Stanford, Cal, and Oregon State. So no Oregon, no Washington. Texas obviously has Alabama on the schedule, but in conference, they've got two Oklahoma State, two Kansas State, two very tricky spots for them on the road. Get OU in a neutral site, Baylor at home, West Virginia, TCU. They're just more potential landmines for Texas than I think there are for USC on that schedule. So I'm with you, Chappie. Give me the Trojans in this first fight club matchup. 
But okay, let's move on to the second matchup in our college football fight club today. We've got two teams that need to make progress this season to keep their fans happy. We've got Florida State at 5-7 a year ago, taking on Nebraska, who finished as we've probably heard 5 million times at this point. You'll hear it one more time here. They finished as the best three-win team in college football history, 3-9 and nine last year. Now, obviously, Nebraska is a little bit further along the Scott Frost era than Florida State is in the Mike Norvell era, but both coaches are in desperate need of a big gear. Scott Frost, obviously, in more desperate need, but both coaches could use a, a big bounce back year in 2022. So Chappie, Florida State versus Nebraska, who wins this fight club matchup? Well, I forgot to say that I consider Texas in the previous question a sleeping giant. I think Florida State is even more of a sleeping giant because you look on paper, they have so much talent. I mean, their recruiting has been top notch. The, the recruiting really hasn't dropped off. I consider Mike Norvell an offensive savant. I mean, when yeah. when he puts it all together, he has the the knowledge base and he has the experience and he has the X's and O's, the schemes. It's just a matter of meshing all the Jimmies and the Joes to take one from Bob Davey. They need a quarterback. I'm not sold yeah. on Jordan Travis. I was having a conversation with some Noel fans last night, and they were trying to take me more on the side of Jordan Travis and saying, you know, look, he's a good passer. He's more than just a runner. And I understand that, but I just haven't seen him – to be a quarterback that is going to take a program like Florida State and have them contend with Clemson and NC State, and I'm going to say even Louisville in the Atlantic this year. So I have Florida State going six and six, finishing fourth in the Atlantic. So that means I'm going to give it to Nebraska. I have them actually winning the Big Ten West this year, and really outside of Northwestern and Illinois, all the other five teams in the West, it's you could make an argument for any of those five, and I would not put up any argument. But I think Nebraska. The big key for them, the, the, what puts me over the top for them being successful this year is Mark Whipple coming in, not just as the off offense coordinator, but as a quarterback's coach. He's one of the best quarterback coaches out there. And Casey Thompson, I think that was a great thing for him to get out of Texas and go to a place like Nebraska where he can focus on just himself. And it's not to disparage anybody else in that quarterback room. I think Chubba Purdy was a pretty good get for them as well. But Casey Thompson wowed me in the Alamo Bowl two years ago. I thought he looked overall pretty good last year. We know he's got the athleticism and he's got the arm. They've got a lot of potential at receiver. So if they can get Thompson to make those receivers better and Mickey Joseph, who comes in as the new wide receivers coach, I think that'll help. They've got a steady O-line. Their defense is very good, especially on the pass rush. I think Garrett Nelson could contend for Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year this year. I mean, I think he's that good. So really their front seven in that 3-4 scheme under Eric Chenander, the secondary will be good enough. and. The good thing for Nebraska is they're not really going to have to go against too many vaunted offenses in the Big Ten West. They've got to contend against the physical ground-and-pound teams like Iowa and Minnesota. I think Purdue is slightly overrated. And Wisconsin, until I see Graham Mertz actually play at least 70% to the potential that he had coming in, I'm not sold on Wisconsin being that team just yet this year because they, they lose a lot on defense and wow. – you know, Nebraska, I think, gets them in the right spot. That, that game's in Lincoln where Wisconsin has beaten the Huskers eight straight times, but getting them in the second to last week of the season in all likelihood for the Big Ten West title there, I think Nebraska gets it done this year. Because like you said, Scott Frost, it's put up or shut up, and nobody bleeds Nebraska Big Red more than he does. So you know he wants to get that done, and he made those necessary changes, even the pay cut to make sure that that happened this year. 
It's another great call, Chappie. I hate to have the same pick as you here in each of these first two matchups, but trying to be objective, trying to give you my authentic thoughts, I'm 100% with you here. I, I like FSU's talent more. I will start off by saying that. I think Florida State has more talent, 1 through 85 in their roster, than Nebraska does. And that's not to say Nebraska doesn't have talent. They do, but Florida State just recruits at a different level. And I'm actually a little bit higher on Jordan Travis than you are. I'm not ready to say Jordan Travis is a candidate to become an elite quarterback in the ACC this year. I'm not ready to go that far, but I have seen growth in his game at the quarterback position. I think he can take another step forward this year. I mean, they were far better with him last year than they were with McKenzie Milton. I know McKenzie Milton's a great story. I understand that. But without Jordan Travis, for the four state offense averaged 344 yards a game and only 17 points. With him, they went up to 397 yards a game and 28 and a half points. Still not an elite offense by any stretch of the imagination. He still has a lot of room to improve, especially as a passer. But we know he has the athleticism, the ability to make plays with his legs. And I think he continues to grow as a passer. We'll see what kind of impact he can have this year. But I, I would agree with you. I think that Casey Thompson does bring more stability to Nebraska because the fact is if Nebraska can just eliminate those catastrophic turnovers that derailed their season last year they should have been a seven win team last year they can easily be a seven win or better team this year and I go back to schedule just like with USC and Texas when you look at the schedule that's the problem for Florida State Clemson and Miami are on the schedule. They also have to go to NC State. They get Wake at home. But that's four games right there. I think if you're handicapping right here in July, the end of July, those are four games that Florida State is going to be an underdog going into this season. And then they have LSU in New Orleans. They're already a slight underdog in that game. I don't like that spot playing LSU in New Orleans in the Superdome. That's a tough spot. And then you have tricky upset spots at Louisville and at Syracuse. Florida State should probably win those games, but there's no guarantee. Louisville and Syracuse both have enough playmakers, especially at quarterback with Malik Cunningham and Garrett Schrader, to potentially upset the Knowles. We've seen Florida State fall victim to those kind of upsets over the past couple of years. That's kind of become the regular for Florida State, to be honest with you. And then look at Nebraska's schedule. They avoid Ohio State. They avoid Michigan State and Penn State. They do have to go to Michigan, which you probably can chalk up a loss right now. But the other two teams they get in cross-divisional play is Rutgers and Indiana. They also get Wisconsin and Minnesota, who I think are the two favorites in the Big Ten West coming into this season. They get both those games at home. They had to play Oklahoma in the non-conference, but they get that game at home. There's no Lincoln Riley to contend with. There's a lot of changeover, a lot of turnover on that Oklahoma team. And I would rush, I would much rather if I'm trying to pick between playing Oklahoma at home or LSU in New Orleans, I'd much rather be Nebraska and play Oklahoma at home in the non-conference than be Florida State playing LSU in New Orleans. So I'm with you here, Chappie. I think both teams make strides this year, but at the end of the season, I think it is Nebraska that will walk out of the college football fight club victorious with the better season. And our last college football fight club matchup today is the Tennessee Volunteers coming off a 76 campaign a year ago, taking on the Kansas State Wildcats from the Big 12, coming off an 8-5 campaign of their own. And these are two teams coming into this 2022 season with some hope and optimism. There's a lot of excitement within both fan bases about what these teams could potentially do this season. What kind of step can they take forward? So Chappie, at the end of the day, who ends up having a better season, Tennessee or Kansas State? Well, and I was just going to ask you that to qualify this. So the better season, I have Kansas State going eight and four, finishing fifth in the Big 12. I have Tennessee going seven and five. So by virtue of record, 
Kansas State, I think, has the better season. However, and I mean, you know, Tennessee, to, to hear that they are projected by, by me to finish fifth in the SEC East, I know that I'm ticking off a lot of Vol fans here. However, you put these two in a bowl game on a neutral site, I would actually take Tennessee. I think Tennessee has the more talented team. However, I think Kansas State gets it done with one more victory. So you look at Kansas State. I'm really intrigued at what Adrian Martinez will do with Colin Klein, their new offensive coordinator. He's a guy who it's it's been said that he's going to tailor the offense to really feature a quarterback like Adrian Martinez. And I think when he was promoted at the end of last season, that was a big incentive for Martinez to say, you know what, I, I think I want to go there. And I think a fresh start for Amart, getting out of Lincoln and getting out of all that, and it's not to say that he did a bad job like you were talking about earlier, and I don't think he has any ill will towards Lincoln or Husker fans because they're a great fan base. But I think just this this fresh start in his last year of playing college football, working not only with Colin Klein but with Deuce Vaughn and Malik Knowles as his skill guys, an experienced offensive line that brings back four starters from last year, and then they also bring back Taylor Portier, who was out last year with injury. He was a starter the previous season. The defense is good, especially on the D-line. They've got two bookends. Um, Enudike uh, Uzama and then Khalid Duke, who's coming back from a slight injury last year. I think Daniel Green is – I picked him as my Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. I think that he is a lot better than most people give him credit for. And that's a league where there's not a ton of standout defensive stars. So I think he's got as good a chance to to make first team and, and be that MVP than as anybody. And they got two solid corners too, Echo Boy though and Julius Brents. I think those two can lock it down. They usually play well on defense. So Kansas State's one of those teams that I pick them fifth in the Big 12. However, I could easily see them finishing higher than that. Tennessee, we know that they're good on offense. We know that they go fast-paced. Josh Heupel is a great offensive mind. Hendon Hooker, maybe the most underrated quarterback in the SEC, maybe in the country. A lot of people are putting others ahead of him, thinking that, well, he's just an athletic mobile type quarterback, but he was very, very efficient last year. I think he returns as the most efficient passer in the SEC outside of Bryce Young. Um, and they've got a good crew of receivers getting uh, Brew McCoy from USC. If he is finally in a position to play college football and, and he can put everything else aside and he's ready to go, I think that's important. The offensive line causes a little bit of concern for me. Plus, they lost their leading rusher, Tyon Evans, who went over to Louisville. Defensively, though, question marks for Tennessee, especially in the past defense. They're also a pretty undisciplined team. So, again, in terms of how the season shapes out, I think Kansas State has a slightly better season mark. But I am going to give the Vols credit and say that I think that they have a more talented team between those two. Chappie, we're doing it again, man. <laughs> I, and, and I, I seriously you. thought you were going to go with Tennessee as, as having the better <laughs> season. So that's where I thought, okay, we'll at least have one. But, yeah. hey, it, it's, it doesn't hurt to agree. Yeah, this isn't first take where one host takes one position, the other host is forced to take the other position. We're being objective, we're being honest here, we're giving you our authentic takes, but once again, Chappie, you nailed it, man. I totally agree with you here. And also, like you said, I do think Tennessee, this is the weird thing, I think Tennessee is the better team. If Tennessee and Kansas State ended up playing in the postseason, I think Tennessee would win that football game. But that's not how college football works. Once again, like it did in the first two matchups, it comes down to schedule for me. The fact is, Tennessee has to play Bama and Georgia. They have to play the two teams that faced off against each other for the national title last year. 
that's probably not going to go well for them. And on top of that, they have road trips to LSU, a road trip to Pitt. I would pick Tennessee to go on the road and win at Pitt right now, but that's not a, a guarantee. Pitt could absolutely win that football game. And you look at Kansas State. I mean, they're non-conference. They have South Dakota, Mizzou at home. Mizzou is a very middling SEC team. And they got Tulane. That's their non-conference slate, and they're all at home. I don't like the fact that this is a season where Kansas State has to play five Big 12 games on the road, but they get Texas and Oklahoma State at home, which makes those games a little bit more winnable. I think they can get at least one of those games. And I just look at the Kansas State schedule, and despite the fact they have five conference road games, I don't think they have any automatic losses outside of maybe the game at Oklahoma. I think the rest of them are a lot of toss-ups and they could they could win every single one of them. They could lose all of them, but the more likely scenario is that they win more than they lose because I do think this is a year they have built to. I think they have some stability on offense with Deuce Vaughn. And obviously you mentioned the receivers. They've got two great receivers, Malik Knowles and Phillip Brooks. I'm very interested to see what Adrian Martinez can do in this offense. I think with a fresh start, with a new system, a new coaching staff, new teammates, and a new fan base, to be honest with you, kind of takes some of the pressure off of him and he won't have to press as much. So I think this Kansas State offense is going to put up some numbers this year. I think they have some really good talent coming back, especially in their front seven. And against that schedule, I think they end up nine and three, eight and four. I think Tennessee has a chance to get to eight and four. Seven and five might end up being more likely than Tennessee. I mean, Tennessee is a strange team. I think they could end up anywhere from seven and five to nine and three. I think nine and three is probably their ceiling and seven and five is probably the floor with that team. But the schedule, I, I would just give Kansas State the edge when it comes to their schedule. So that was the College Ball Fight Club. But before we get out of here, I'm not quite done with Chappie yet. We're going to have a little bit more fun before it gets out of here. We're going to do, again, something very much outside the box. You don't really see this with college football talk, but we're going to have some fun today. And what we're going to do is we're going to play two truths and a lie college football edition. So my little twist on this is that I'm going to give Chappie three statements about the 2022 college football season, and he is going to tell me which one of those statements is the lie, or in our case, which one of the statements is least likely to end up being true. Just a fun way to cover a lot of different topics in the college football landscape. So Chappie, the first set of statements are as follows. Tyler Van Dyke leads the ACC in passing. Jermaine Burton does not lead Alabama in receiving. Someone other than Brock Bowers or Michael Mayer wins the Mackey Award. So which one of those is the lie? I'll read them one more time. Tyler Van Dyke leads the ACC in passing. Jermaine Burton at Alabama does not lead the Crimson Tide in receiving. And someone other than Brock Bowers or Michael Mayer wins the Mackey Award. Those are three good ones, man. I would have to say I'm going to go Burton does not lead Alabama in receiving is going to be the lie. They've got talent. I just think that he is going to be the, the go-to target. And, and I think that that might have the, the easiest path to getting. So if he's not the leading receiver, um, it, it's only going to be by a little bit. Or if he, I, I should say, because I think he will be the leading receiver, I think it will be just by a little bit. Tyler Van Dyke, I think he's good, but the the quarterbacks in the ACC, there's so many. I mean, 
I, I talk about Sam Hartman just by the the amount that he's probably going to have to chuck the ball around. And yeah. Tyler Van Dyke is, is not necessarily in as much of a pass-happy system, I think, than Sam Hartman is, or even DJ Uyunglele. I think he has a bounce back here this year. So I could see TVD being in the top three, even top two, but I don't know what to guarantee that he leads that. And there's so many good tight ends this year. Brock Bowers and Mike Mayer are the the easy favorites, but I could see uh, at least 10 other guys who you could throw in there, and I wouldn't be shocked to see him do it. Yeah, these are tough, man. I kind of designed these to not have a correct answer because you can make an argument for any of these. That's the fun of it. But let's keep this going. Rapid fire here. The next set, we've got Minnesota wins the Big Ten West. North Carolina wins the ACC Coastal or someone other than Utah, USC, and Oregon plays in the Pac-12 championship game. Again, that's Minnesota wins the Big Ten West, North Carolina wins the ACC Coastal, or someone other than Utah, USC, and Oregon plays in the Pac-12 championship game. I'm probably going to get skewered for this in, in my circles, but I think... Minnesota winning the Big Ten West will be a lie. I think that they've got a very good shot at it. And you look at their schedule, they get Iowa at home. I know they've lost seven straight in that battle for the Floyd of Rosedale. They, they've proven that they can hang with Wisconsin for the axe. I mean, they've, they've won two of the last three. And, you know, they get Purdue at home, which is a lot of people's darlings. And they get Purdue. That's their second Big Ten game. They open up Big Ten play with Michigan State on the road. But, you know, P.J. Fleck, I think that if I'm going to put my money on any coach that's most motivated in the Big Ten this year, it's going to be P.J. Fleck for two reasons. One, he hasn't won the West yet. I mean, he's won the Axe. He's beaten a team like Penn State. You know, they've been in the top ten. But he hasn't won the West yet, and he hasn't beaten Iowa. So those are the two big things that P.J. Fleck, hell or high water, that's what he's set to do. And I think that they've got the team to do it this year. Tanner Morgan is back for his 21st season in college football. Yeah. Mo Ibrahim. Is Kirk Taraka back with him? Right, exactly. I know. Well, that's another thing. I mean, people want to knock Tanner Morgan. I like him as a quarterback. I think that he's the – the quarterback in the Big Ten West that I feel most comfortable about, and that includes Aiden O'Connell. O'Connell had a good year last year, but let's see if he can duplicate that, especially when he loses David Bell. Uh, and he also lost Milton Wright, who was gone for academics. Yeah, yeah. so um, so yeah, Tanner Morgan is the, is the quarterback that I feel most confident with, and a big part of that is getting Kirk Shiraka back. They've, they've been rebuilding offensive lines there. I know that they've, they've played the same guys for a while in Minnesota, but it's an experienced offensive line group, even if they don't have as many starts. They, they're like fourth and fifth-year juniors and seniors in the program. Their defense is really, really good. Joe Rossi is maybe the most underrated D coordinator north of the Mason-Dixon line. So I just see Minnesota's path to winning the West seems a lot easier than North Carolina topping Miami or Pitt to win the coastal this year. And then outside of those three in the PAC 12 that you mentioned, I don't feel comfortable in anybody else besides USC, Utah, or Oregon winning the PAC 12 championship, even playing for the PAC 12 championship. If it's going to be anybody else, it might be Washington, but that'll take some upside downness in that conference this year. And again, I, I would much rather take the Minnesota pick to the bank than either of the other two. So I think that one's the lie. You make a great point there, Chappie. And again, these are designed to not have correct answers, to basically create an impossible choice. 
for the sake of discussion, but I think I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction on this one. I'm going to say that North Carolina wins the ACC. Coastal would be the lie in this one. It's certainly not inconceivable that North Carolina could win the Coastal because let's be honest here, it's the ACC Coastal. Chaos is the rule. But I really do believe that Miami should be the clear favorite in the Coastal coming into the season. North Carolina has recruited really well under Mack Brown. Defensively, I think they have a chance to be really good, which has not been the case during Mack Brown's second tenure at North Carolina. But they've recruited well for a couple of years now. They get Noah Taylor from Virginia as a pass rusher coming off the edge. Tony Grimes, Storm Duck in the secondary are now upperclassmen. You land five-star Travis Shaw up front on the defensive line. I know he's a freshman, but that's a big-time true freshman. And of course, offensively, Josh Downs is one of the best running backs in the country, but we still don't know what to think about the quarterback position. Is it going to be Drake May? Is it going to be Jacoby Criswell? That battle is still open, and whoever wins that job is probably going to perform at a high level, but are they going to be able to play at the level of Sam Howell, who I know had issues at times last year, but it was more about the talent around him, especially the offensive line, having so many issues there than it was about Sam Howell himself. And I just look at Miami with Tyler Van Dyke, one of the more proven commodities to the quarterback position in the entire country, certainly in the ACC. They've been recruiting very well. They've accumulated a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball. Now, it was undisciplined talent last year, but you have to think Mario Cristobal is going to come in and clean some of that up. Plus, North Carolina does have to go to Miami this year. They also have to play at Wake Forest. They got to play NC State, which, of course, they do every year as their permanent non-divisional opponent. So I would just handicap Miami as the pretty clear favorite in the Coastal coming into this season. And Chappie, last one here, man. We'll get you out of here on this one. Will Anderson wins the Heisman. Michigan beats Ohio State and wins their second consecutive Big Ten title. Or someone other than Texas or Oklahoma, who are the betting favorites in the Big 12, wins the Big 12. Again, that's Will Anderson wins the Heisman. Michigan beats Ohio State and wins their second consecutive Big Ten title, or someone other than Texas or Oklahoma wins the Big 12? Well, I'm going to say this one, and it's only because of history, but I don't think Will Anderson wins the Heisman. Honestly, I don't see any defensive player winning the Heisman anytime soon, which is why I think that they need to branch off and have an offensive-specific award yes, and then award. and then hype a defensive award, whether it's the, the Nagurski or um, – the Bednarik Award, and start to hype it up and have it presented even after the Heisman's given out, but do it something like that because these defensive players need some kind of recognition. And Charles Woodson, I contend that the only reason he won the Heisman in 97 is because he played offense and special teams, and people will want to debate that, but I honestly think Indomitian Sue had a more dominating defensive uh, season and maybe even Chase Young, and they didn't really even come close to winning the Heisman the way that uh, Woodson did. So yeah, Will Anderson, if he didn't win it last year, I don't see it happening this year either. Yeah, I think that's the right answer here. Ohio State certainly should beat Michigan. I think they're the better team, the more talented team, the more complete, deeper team this year. They also get Michigan at home. But at the same time, I also don't think it's inconceivable that Michigan could go into the horseshoe and win that game. They kind of got the monkey off their back last year. Maybe the pressure's off there. I love what Michigan has offensively. They have playmakers all over the field. They lost a lot on defense, though. That's obviously my concern, especially considering that was the driving force behind their Big Ten title run last year. But I agree. I think Michigan beating Ohio State and winning their second consecutive Big Ten title is more likely than a defensive player, even a defensive player as dominant as Will Anderson, win the Heisman Trophy. Now, the only caveat I have here with Will Anderson 
is that he is at least in the conversation entering the season. He's gotten some preseason love to at least be a guy that can make a trip to New York City. If you make a trip to New York City, maybe you luck up and win the Heisman. So I think that's the only difference here. Whether it's Indomitian Sue or whoever has been in the past defensively, those are players that have made the public kind of take notice in season with their dominant play. But that's still just an uphill battle for a defensive player. But Will Anderson's a little bit of a different story. He got some conversation for the Heisman last year. And there were some voices throughout the offseason, including mine, who were saying he just got robbed last year, that he should have won it. So I think that does give him a little bit more of a leg up when it comes to the Heisman race than you have seen from other defensive players in years past. But we know what this award has become, and it's certainly not been a very defensive-friendly award, to say the very least. But Chappie, as promised, I'm going to let you get out of here on this one, man. I really appreciate you jumping on here with me today. We are definitely going to have to do this again. Yeah, anytime. Just uh, hook it up, and we'll do it. All right, buddy. Sounds good, man. You take care. But all right, guys, that officially wraps up Episode 6 of Never Graduate. I will be back next week taking a look at the most important games in the month of November. And that's just the beginning, guys. We've got a lot of great content for you guys leading up to the kickoff of the 2022 college football season. We're going to be talking upset alerts, wildcard teams, teams I like, teams I don't like. We're going to have a predictions extravaganza, a ton of great college football content for you guys. So make sure to come on back each week to get your hardcore college football fix here on Never Graduate. But thank you guys for listening. Always appreciate it. I'm Tyler, and I'll talk to you guys next time.